So two weeks ago, we finished Malachi together. Dr. McKellar led you all through some of the writings of John. And today we pick up really with the third book of this series entitled The Gospel-Centered Community that, that are formed over what's called the pastoral epistles or 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Now the interesting thing about this is, is Titus chronologically is not the last book. You know, 2nd Timothy is written chronologically after Titus. Some of the events that transpire recognize that when Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus with the book of 2 Timothy, it's his last writing. He's, he's not going to be writing again. He talks about how it's just a matter of time before he is executed. And the events and the locations and all that he describes, we recognize that Titus fits in neatly between 1 and 2 Timothy. You know, so you might ask the question, well, why does it appear in my Bible after 2 Timothy? And I would answer and say, well, they're not arranged chronologically. And you would say, oh, okay, that's it. And I'd say, yeah, that's, that's basically it. But it fits within this nice three-book section that is a really great application for the church. It answers a lot of questions on, you know, how should our church be structured? Somebody said, well, have you studied First, Second Timothy, and Titus? And they said, no. He said, well, you should go check that out. It's got a lot of good stuff in there. Somebody said, well, what is... What's a, what's a pastor supposed to do? What's a deacon supposed to do? Somebody said, well, have you read First Timothy starting around, I don't know, chapter 3? And they said, well, no. He said, well, that's, that's a good place. You might want to look in there. So what we see in First, Second Timothy and Titus, there's a whole lot to be said for how the church as a body of believers responds, and there's a whole lot to be said for how the leadership should respond, what they should look like, how the church should be governed, and a variety of things. And so but this week, what we're going to look at are the first four verses, and Paul sets a tone which will be met out over the remainder of the letter. Now, next week, we're going to look at what Paul says about the governance of the church, what he says in that, and so I know you guys are super excited to hear that, but this week, Paul is setting the tone for the rest of the letter. Let me read the first four verses for us, and then we will move through this. It says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, recognize that every letter Paul writes, there's some type of introduction. He is addressing who he is, who they are, and then basically an interchangeable type language. But what we recognize here in Titus is that it's different. He's got a much longer introduction than occurs in most of his other books. Romans aside, Romans has the longest of all the introductions that Paul offers. But here, in these four short verses, Paul unleashes volumes of potential information. I mean, you could write volumes on on, on just these short phrases that Paul uses. And so we're going to walk through a few of these today, okay? I know McKellar lets you guys slide on a lot of things, and I talked to him about that. I said, when you asked them what seemingly rhetorical questions, did they respond? He said, no. 
I said, did you, did you stop and say, are you awake? Are you hearing me? He said, no. I said, you know, two years. Two years we've been working on this. And he said, I know. All right, let's try this again. You know what? We're just going to look at this phrase by phrase. Let's start together, okay? okay? Hey, man, it's good to be home. There we go. He starts off in verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Man, it's already so much. We recognize that Paul is writing this letter. He is in the midst of a missionary journey. But look at how he addresses who he is. Twofold. He says that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul gets into this idea and says that I am a servant of God... This is the image that conjures to my mind, or as I'm thinking again about this yesterday, this is the image that conjures my mind. My mom's mom, my memo, had two people that worked for her faithfully. There's a husband and a wife. The husband's name was Lee Ellis. The wife's name was Emily. And Emily had one of the best goatees I've ever seen in my entire life. And my cousins told me that when I got to be older that she would be my wife. And that set a whole other set of issues that I'm still working through. But when I think of somebody that works for somebody else, now, they got paid. They weren't servants in the idea of being indentured or not receiving payment. They got, they got paid, but, man, they worked harder than anybody else I've just about seen. Lee Ellis is the only man I've ever seen in my entire life that when we were working on, on a three-wheeler, he was trying to get this thing working for me, presumably so that I could take it sharply around a corner and not ask him ever, ever again to work on that three-wheeler. But he was pulling out bad gas out of this thing. Now, if any of you ever siphon gas out, you, you suck a little bit on that, on that water hose and then you throw it down, right? And, and that's how you do it. Now, Lealis was an expert gas siphoner. What he would do is get a full mouthful of gasoline, spit out that full mouthful of gasoline, and then throw the water hose down. He was intense. And he was just a really tremendously hard worker. But when we think of people that take jobs like this, we don't think very highly of them, do we? I mean, these aren't the types of people that you're going to ask to hold public office. These aren't the types of people that you're going to go to and ask for advice. These aren't the types of people that you would seek to model your own life after, are they? Probably not. Paul shifts the whole paradigm of understanding. He just shifts the whole thing. Paul writes and he says, Paul, a servant of God. I wrote down a list of other men that are either self-described or described by the writers of Scripture as servants. And I just want to read you this list and some of these references. And I want that to, to form in your mind and, and radically transform what it is to be a servant. Okay? Moses. Moses in Psalm 105 and verse 26 is spoken of as a servant. Joshua. Joshua in, in Joshua 24 and 29, is spoken of as a servant. Psalms, again, refers to Abraham in 105 and verse 42 as a servant. David, in Psalm 89 and verse 5, is spoken of as a servant. Jacob. Jacob, once again, is spoken of 
is a servant in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 48 and verse 20. These weren't lowly men. These weren't lowly men. These aren't the, the type of men that you just push to the side and say, well, is Moses really a big deal? Is David really that big of a deal? Is Joshua that big of a deal? Is, what's the big deal with Abraham anyway? Do you notice the distinction there? Paul didn't write and just say, and self-identify as a servant and say, look, I'm a servant, I do menial tasks. If a serv- as a servant, I just kind of give myself and just do whatever. But he qualifies it. He says, I'm a servant of God. Now think how different your life looks if you take on that same self-descriptor. And so I walk up to Larry and say, Larry, what do you do? He says, well, you know, I work out at L3. I say, okay, yeah, I knew that. I say, Larry, but who are you? And he says, well, I'm Larry and I'm a servant of God. It radically changes your work. It radically changes your job. I go up to Kevin. I say, Kevin, what do you do? And he starts talking about it. I say, well, Kevin, who are you? He says, well, I'm a servant of God. Everything Kevin does is transformed by that self-descriptor. I had a friend of, our, friend of our family, took family vacations with him ever since I was three. And he was an executive for, for Exxon, or Esso, when we lived overseas. Lived a little bit everywhere. I met them when they lived in Norway. They moved to Kuala Lumpur. They lived in Cairo. They lived in a variety of places in the U.S. And when I went in and talked to him when he was on his deathbed, it's just asking him, so, you know, what's the, what's the most exciting thing that you ever did in life? What was your life like? And he said, everywhere I ever went, every job I ever took, I went into it with the understanding that I was a missionary on Exxon's payroll, that God was using me, that I decided to set my whole life aside and say, God, no matter where you take me, no matter what you do with me, I will serve you first. So he said, every country we ever went to, every, in some of these countries they lived in were within a Muslim context. Some of these countries they went in, it cost him something to live a gospel witness. Some of the, some of the job promotions he took, it cost him something to go to these other executives and to live his life within the context of the gospel. It wasn't easy, but he decided in his mind that living as a servant of God, or in his words, a missionary for God within the context of his workplace was the most transformational thing he could do. And it shaped his entire life and everybody's life that he came in contact with. Now let me ask you, Paul seems to understand his purpose. Friend, this morning as you look at your life, do you understand your purpose? Paul writes and he says that he is a servant of God. Now look at the second descriptor he offers us. He says, I'm a servant of God and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul lived his life under the direction of God. Paul lived his life also in such a way as to be sent out by Jesus. So he was restricted in those things he did. He followed the lead, the direction of God. Every decision he made was held up. Is this what God would have me do? Would God have me take this job? Would God have me move to this place? Would God have me marry this girl? Would God have me remain single? How would God have me approach everybody that I come into contact with? He couples it and says, I am sent out. God didn't call Paul to a life of leisure. 
God called Paul to be sent out. God called Paul to be effective in the lives of others. You see that? He has the decidedly others-centered focus in his life. We see that in this next phrase. He's a servant. He's an apostle for whose sake? It is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And there's a tremendous amount we could say about that. There's a tremendous amount we could say about that. Paul is a servant. He's using the word doulos. Paul is a slave. He's working and he's doing these things for other people's faith. That's, that's what he's engaged for. That's what he's given his life for. That's what he's put himself at risk for. He's working. He's slaving away for other people. That's the whole reason he was sent out. So that other people might come to know who Jesus Christ is. So that other people might move from darkness and into light. That is it. He's moving. He's operating for the sake of their faith. Now the interesting thing, I'm I'm reading through this and I'm thinking through this this week. And and the, the emphasis, probably in a lot of your minds this morning, is what do I take away from this, right? Man, that's a good thought. That's a good thought, because you're asking yourself the question, what, what about my life needs to change? Now, a bad question is, what about my spouse's, or what about this joker on the end of the pew's life needs, needs to change? If that's the question you're asking, put it out of your mind, okay? Larry, you too. Put that out of your mind. Don't think about that. There's a personal component to this. What needs to change in my life as I hear this? But it doesn't stop there. What needs to change in the life of our body? Recognize over and over again these letters that are written. They're not written just to individuals so that they might process through them, so that they might compartmentalize and internalize them and keep them branched off and sealed off from everybody else. But they're written so that they have impact at a corporate level, okay? Do you catch that distinction? Do you recognize that difference? Brad reads this. Brad reads this and applies it just to his life. Changes his habits, changes the way he does things, the way he thinks about things, but it stops there. He doesn't think, how can I fit into the overarching body? How might this apply to Ridgecrest? He's missing it. It only works. It only comes to its fullest understanding and potential that could be realized in as much as we think, how is this integrated corporately. Paul gets that. He's working, he's slaving away, he's training up men and women, he's sending them out so that they could pour out their lives so that other people might be impacted with the gospel. So he writes this, he says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave, I'm an apostle for whose sake? Not Paul's. Not Paul's. He's not just doing all this stuff so he can have more jewels in his crown in heaven. That's not what he's thinking about. What he's thinking about is the faith of other people. He says, I'm sent out as an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. In this, we see two things. We see that God is moving and saving people. God is giving people this understanding of who he is. He's calling them to respond in what way? In faith. And he's doing it by what agency? Through Paul through those that Paul is training up. 
Paul knows who he is. He knows what his purpose is. And he wants to see that purpose of God move, as, as he describes here in Titus, through these three spheres. He's talking about faith. He's talking about knowledge. And he's talking about knowledge's manifestation, which he describes as godliness. See this. See this in this passage. Paul says he's working for the sake of the fake faith of God's elect. And what else? And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul's moving in line with the Great Commission. We, we just don't stop with this presentation of the gospel where I, where I meet you and I just regurgitate the gospel all over you and you're like, oh, what is this? What do I do with this? And, and, and then you're left in, the, in this messy mess trying to figure out how it works in your life and how, how to assimilate this and how to transform it. But Paul gives us this understanding that we go into somebody's life, that we pour out the gospel to them, and then they, they move along this, this understanding. They move along in, in this understanding. And so he says, look, I want to see them come to faith. I want to see them recognize Jesus for who he is and who they are and how these things come together. But I want to see it move beyond that. I'm working, Paul says, for their knowledge of the truth. Paul wants to see them grow in their understanding of who God is. Now, in, in their context and in receiving this, that means thoroughly investing themselves in the lives of other brothers and sisters in Christ. People that have been Christians longer than them, people that, that are Jewish background believers that can say, Paul said this, and let me show you how this, this works out in the revelation of who God has shown us as himself to be in Genesis. Man, it's the same for us today. You come to faith, you're a baby Christian, you surround yourself with men and women who are more mature in the faith than you are. And this is what they should be doing. They should be pouring out their lives into you so that you don't make some of the same goofy mistakes that they have. They should be pouring out their life to you, raising you up, raising up the next generation. And that's so much of what Titus is about, pouring into this next generation. That's all of what Titus 2 is about. He says he wants them to grow in this knowledge of the truth. Now, this is what that is not. We don't just want a whole bunch of really smart Christians. Be good, it would be challenging for me because you'd walk up and be like, Well, Pastor, have you have you noticed over here there seems to be a textual variant in Habakkuk 2 6? And I'd say, Wow, your voice is annoying. Um, and, and no, I haven't noticed that. But I will I will look into that if you'll write me a letter um, and remind me. I only accept it snail mail, so so I'll see it in a week. We don't want just a whole bunch of really smart Christians. Friends, if, if, if you give your life and do nothing but study Scripture and there's no outlet for you, all you become is a really smart person. You might know this book back and forth, but if it's got no change, no transformation in your life, you've totally missed the whole trajectory and purpose of the gospel to begin with. Paul writes and he says, we want them to know the truth. Jesus had something to say about this in John chapter 8. He says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. He's describing himself. He's describing what it is to grow in this knowledge and this understanding. But look what he goes on to say. He says, this knowledge should accord with godliness. We want them to come to faith. We want them to grow in this knowledge and understanding of the faith and how it transforms and impacts life and all of these things, but we want to see it realized in the production of godliness. 
And so when somebody comes to faith, Paul's talking about it. He says, look, my life is other-centered. I am working for the faith of the elect. I want to see them come to faith. I want to see them grow in knowledge. But I want to see it be a very particular kind of knowledge. I don't want to raise up a whole bunch of bookwormy Christians. What I want to raise up is people whose life is, is, is poured out in this display of godliness, this display of, of who God is, of what he calls them to be to their neighbors and their families in their workplace. True Christianity can only be an outward focus. True Christianity, see, it's just it's missing something. If 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 your life, if your faith is only ever directed inward, if you're only ever looking at those things in your own life, saying, How does this apply to me? How can I become a better person? But you're never shifting it outwards. You're never looking outwards. It's not manifesting itself in the way that you live your life. If you're not becoming progressively more and more a better reflection of God and who He is in the Bible's terms, if you're not becoming more holy, then what are you growing in? What are you growing in? See, those things that when we first come to faith, those things that we look at and say, can you believe that Joker thinks that's a sin? What a silly thing. What a silly thing to get upset about. God's continually moving in our hearts. He's continually stirring in our hearts and our midst, and he's giving us his perspective on everything. And it's a real blessing from God that, that when he calls us to salvation, when he changes our hearts, that he doesn't give us this list of requirements that we're to keep from the very beginning. Because it would be wholly overwhelming, it would be ridiculous, and, and it would completely undo the sacrifice of Christ. If we're busy trying to keep these lists of requirements, but what we recognize, what should be, the longer you're a Christian, the more these things just continue to flow out of your life. And not because you've got a longer list of things that you do better than somebody else. Not just because you've, you've quit doing more things than other people. Well, man, I don't, I don't drink. I don't even drink mouthwash. I rinse my mouth out with water. And we all know it. You come to this understanding the longer you're in this relationship with Jesus, the greater effect he has on you. I don't know how else to say that. And the more I know him, the more he breaks my heart to who I am. Does that make sense to you? The older I get, the longer I've been a Christian, the more he shows me parts of my life that, that, I, that I've kept him out of parts of my life I didn't even realize I had. I bet it's the same way for you. But you know, for too many of us, we, we get to this part of our lives and we say, whoa, now, whoa, easy back now, God. Easy back now. I don't want you going there. Because you know what it's going to cost us? And worship, we're afraid of what it's going to cost us. And we'd really rather God not even tread in those areas. He just doesn't operate that way. You're going to be a really frustrated person if you try and live your Christian life marking off those areas where you don't allow God to go. You're not going to get a whole lot of satisfaction out of your Christianity. You're not going to get a whole lot deeper 
Because God wants to take all of you. He has purchased all of you. You don't recognize yourself as a servant, as a slave to God? Then you haven't yet realized what it is to be a Christian. See, in salvation, God has moved you from being a slave to sin and death to being a slave to him and to righteousness. And your Christian walk is moving through the steady recognition of that in its application to everything. And what a blessing that we've got a God that loves us so that he is steadily moving and showing us these areas that he desires to, to be made famous in our own lives. These areas of our lives that we're holding back from him, God is waiting, he is prompting us, and he is calling us to submit these things to him. We want to be those that grow in a knowledge of the truth, but a knowledge of the truth which produces godliness. Look what else Paul goes on to say. Describing this, he says, it is in hope of eternal life. It's in this hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, this, this hope of eternal life, Paul gives us this glimpse of, of what's going on here in this understanding over in Ephesians. Flip with me over to Ephesians. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read 12 and 13 together. Paul's moving through the Ephesians' misunderstanding of, of this really this kind of separation of Jews and Gentiles, circumcision and uncircumcision. Right about verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So he's talking about their former way of living, their former existence. He says, Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's describing all of us prior to salvation. Where were we? You were in the world. How were you? You were without hope. You were lost. Elsewhere, Paul describes that as being in darkness. But look at the good news. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a great picture he paints for us. He says, look, you were once held at a distance from God. You were separated from God. You were lost. You were out in the world, and you had no hope. You had no hope. But what changed, what effect brought you near? Simply. He says it's the blood of Christ. This blood of Christ moved in your life. You accepted the sacrifice of Christ. He brought you near. He has moved you into salvation. And now you rest in the hope of eternal life. Now, eternal life isn't something that we wait until we die to realize. Eternal life begins now. It begins at the moment of salvation. That moment when God comes into your life, when he radically saves, when he transforms you, when you are moved from being a slave to sin and death to being a slave of him and to righteousness, you begin eternal life and it continues forever, eternally, into infinity. That's what he says. Some of us, we read this and we say, oh, I don't know. I don't know, man. That just seems like a, that seems, seems like a really big promise. I mean, I've got a 30-year home note, and even that I can't recognize ever having paid off. I don't know, Matt. That just seems like a long time. I mean, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm 34, and so if I retire at 65, whoa, I mean, good gracious. I've got to do this all over again just to get close to it. 
So we start thinking about the idea of eternal. That's a long time. That's it's incomprehensible, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really resonate with us because we, we have such a hard time really understanding what life is going to be like six months from now. Some of us look at it and we just say, can I really trust that? Can we trust that promise? Is this a sure thing? How do we know this isn't just something too good to be true and it's just going to be pulled away from us? How do we know that this is truth? How do we know that this will come to pass? Look at the strength that he lends to this. He says they rest in the hope of eternal life. Where does that come from? Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This is how long this thing's been in the works. Before God spoke the word of creation, he held all of eternal life in his word. Unless you think that, that, that God is just up in heaven and he's, he's thinking, oh man, what do I do next? What do I do next? I gotta figure something out. These people, they just keep messing up. What do I do next? Sin didn't catch God off guard. He wasn't caught off guard in the garden. He wasn't caught off guard when Moses messed up. He wasn't caught off guard when David messed up. None of these things have caught him off guard. It's not like God is in heaven. All of a sudden, the people turn against Jesus. He's crucified, and God says, oh, man, I can't believe they did that. He knew it all. And his promise to all those who are elect, his promise to all those who have come to him in salvation is one of eternal life. And Paul describes this one God, he says, he is the one God who never lies. Now for you and I, the idea of never telling a lie is something that is foreign to us. It's foreign to us. We make it through most of our day living in half-truths. I saw a lot of men on this cruise that definitely live a lot of their lives in half-truths. Half of the truth was stepping in front of the mirror and saying, do I look good in this? You know I do. (laughs) I really felt like I needed to say something to them. But I didn't. The other half was their wife stepping in front of the mirror and and she says, honey, do I look good in this? He said, girl, you know you do. (laughs) I knew I didn't need to say anything to them about that. Paul describes this God and he says, this God never lies. I mean, what a thing. We serve a God that, that, that when he makes his promises, he keeps them. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of people promise me things in life that they haven't, they haven't held to. She began to distrust people. And somehow, maybe, maybe for you, the, the, you've had the same set of experiences and for you, you just... You move that same thing over into God. So when you read promises that God has made to you, you say, yeah, man, I've been disappointed by so many people in my life. How do I know I can trust him? See, Paul was going after this same lie in the heart of those in Crete. He wrote to Titus on the Isle of Crete. It was no coincidence that Paul spoke this word about God's veracity, about his truthfulness, about his, his inability to lie. Look at verse 12. In chapter 1 of Titus. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. 
It goes on to say there are evil beasts and lazy gluttons. It had to be just a great word to receive about your own people there. But Paul wrote to Titus who was serving God on an isle of people who is described by one of their own is always lying. You talk about being disappointed by people, by them not following through on the things they say they're going to do. Paul wrote to a man who's doing ministry on an island of people who's described by being that singular component of their characteristic. They are always liars. And he, he, contrad- he, he puts that up against God. And he says, look, these people are always liars, but this God who promised you eternal life before the ages began, he never lies. He never lies. Look what he goes on to say about it. He says, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching. He, He manifested this eternal life at the proper time in his word through the preaching. Now, Paul said something really similar to this over in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Paul said, therefore, do not be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In this God, he is the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now check this out, verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. God is bringing these things to the realization of those in Crete. He's bringing these things to the realization of those in Greenville, Texas. He's bringing these things to the realization of everyone who hears the gospel pronounced and receives it and becomes saved. These things become manifest through his word. That's what Paul is saying. It's this amazing thing that before the ages began, this is the way that God set it up, that everybody that ever gets saved would be saved in Christ, and it is ultimately realized in all those who get saved. It's manifest. It's it's made obvious. It appears at the moment of salvation for each and every man, woman, and child that comes to know Jesus in a saving way. Now look at the high calling of Paul. He says, it's manifested at the proper time. He goes on and he says, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Paul understood his purpose. His purpose was others. It was their faith. He wanted to see their faith grow. And he gets to the high calling of his purpose. He says, this is what I was entrusted with. Preaching this word. some of you hear me say that and you say I am so glad God did not call me to preach I can rest easy I can eat all I want in the buffet today honey he said that that God called Paul to preach we recognize that Matt's up there preaching or doing something really close to that and so we're safe don't worry about it we just need to keep going but look at this This idea of preaching and proclaiming, Paul wasn't setting aside, he wasn't establishing this special office when he said this. Paul is giving us a pattern to follow. Recognize that we need to live our lives being slaves to Jesus, recognizing that we are sent out, not in the same way Paul is, because we're not apostles, we're not those who have seen Christ risen bodily. 
but we're still under the same command, under the same direction, that we are to go out, we are to go out speaking, living in a certain way, in a way that demonstrates the faith and the knowledge that is manifested in godliness or living holy in our community. But we're to go out speaking. We're to go out making manifest this understanding of Jesus and who he is. This is this tremendous understanding. This is a high calling. It's a terrifying calling. I mean, especially if you're an introvert. Especially if, 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 if being around other people, if engaging other people scares you to death, then being a Christian should be pretty terrifying. Because it doesn't matter what your disposition or, or what your likes or dislikes are in engaging other people. This is it. This is the call. This is where we're headed. This is where Paul was headed. This was the way that he recognized God moving in in his life. And this is what you and I have been entrusted with as well. You get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus says, go. And, and, And there's just unfortunately no footnote at the bottom of that that says, unless, you know, you're shy. Unless you just don't speak very well. The word is to go. The word is to go. Paul recognizes it and sees it as this tremendously high calling. He says God has entrusted him with the gospel. So he passes it on to Titus. In these three short verses, he's he's given us things that we could chew on for another hour or two. But he passes it on to Titus in verse 4. He says, Titus, my true child in a common faith. We recognize that Titus most likely got saved through the missionary endeavor of Paul. That Titus most likely came from a non-believing family, but he came to be saved through Paul and Paul's ministry. And so he tells him grace and peace from God the Father. And check out the difference here. In the end of verse 3, Paul said that God, referred to God being our Savior here. He says, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul gives us this beautiful picture of how salvation works. That before the ages began, it was in, in the plan of God the Father. It was manifested and realized through Jesus Christ and his appearing. And it is manifest each and every time we share the gospel. And some of you, you're 70, you're 80, you're 20, you're 30, you're 15. You've been asking yourself this question for a long time. Saying, what is my purpose? What's God calling me to be? What's God calling me to do? And you're waiting for something amazing. You read stories about people drilling wells in Africa. You read stories about people leading crusades all over the world. You read stories about about the the great revivals. And you read all of these things. You say, "Is, is God calling me to do that? And you wait and you wait and you wait. But you fail to recognize. He's calling you to be faithful. The plan and the final of what it looks like at the end of your life when we all say a word over your coffin, nobody knows. But for the right now, for here and now, this is what he's called you to be. This is what he's called you to be. 
He's called you to have faith. He's called you to grow in knowledge. He's called for that knowledge to manifest itself in holiness, in godliness. And he's called you to take on the urgency of his word and to share it when you come into contact with other people. Do you recognize that? Quit looking for the purpose God has called you to and recognize that it's right here in front of you. It's not some mysterious thing that he's trying to keep from you. He's not making this difficult. He's putting it right here in front of you. This is what he's looking like. This is what he's looking for. This is what he's called you to. How will you respond? How will we respond? Let me pray for you. God, you've given us incredibly high calling. God, thank you that that you've moved in the hearts of many of us for salvation. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to move in the hearts of those who, God, they don't believe you, they they don't follow you, they don't submit their lives to you. God, we thank you that that you have loved us in the cross and that you have loved them as well. And God, I pray that that as as a body of people, we would continue to love them as you have loved them, that we would put the gospel before them, that we would implore them to receive Christ. This is your making entreaty through the Holy Spirit.